Hi, I'm Pastor Adam, and you're listening to the Orange United Methodist Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, that wants to help you find your place in God's story. And we hope this sermon can guide you along that journey. Visit orangemethodist.org to find out more information about location, service times, upcoming events, and ways to give. We hope you enjoy. This morning's scripture comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Hear now God's word. From the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the Israelites journeyed by stages as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do for this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it, so that the people may drink. Moses did so, in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the people the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. My name is Sarah. I'm the associate pastor of youth here at Orange, and I'm grateful to be with you this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Holy Lord, everything we need is found in you. We gather together today to give you thanks and praise for your greatness, for your grace that is overwhelming and your love that is never failing. Let us continue to worship you in spirit and in truth, opening our hearts and minds and strengthened by the promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. In Christ's name, amen. You can live about 100 hours without water, if you're able-bodied, and in average temperatures. Our story in scripture today, however, takes place in the middle of the desert, in the hottest time of the year with sustained highs in the 90s, often higher temperatures and heat index. We know that heat uh, causes sweating as well as all kinds of other effects on our body. All of this cuts those number of hours in half. Now we're looking at 50 hours to survive without water. Except they're walking long distances, carrying all of their belongings with them, their tents, carrying their small children, wrangling their livestock. This brings the time to as little as seven hours, or approximately the time it takes to walk 20 miles without stopping. That's it. One day's walk is enough to meet the end for these people. No wonder they are desperate for water. And I think it's also important that we remember that we're talking about a caravan of around two million people. That's a lot of people. In fact, that is the size and population of the state of Nebraska, which 
if you're like me and have never been to Nebraska and have no concept of the state of Nebraska, it's also the Smith Center's capacity 92 times over. That's a lot of people and a lot of water needed. Rephidim is supposed to be an oasis. It's supposed to be that Bucky's, that travel center of America on the long highway with no exits. It's that, it's that final promise, that oasis. But this is not what they were expecting. Food was taken care of, as we learn in the chapter before, that God had provided manna for the people to eat. But where is the water? The people take their concerns to Moses and demand something to quench their thirst. The language here suggests that a riot may break out at any moment. There are political undertones to the sounds and words that they use, like they're ready to levy charges against Moses. They are clearly big mad. And it's clear that the Israelites, they aren't complaining simply for the sake of complaining. Their needs are real. Their worries are real. Their questions are real. I don't know anyone if faced with imminent death, faced with the suffering of their children or their people, wouldn't rise up to protest access to a basic human resource. It could have been that the area was experiencing drought, that all the water had dried up. It could be that the Amalekites had barred them from accessing the water that was already there. Regardless of the reason, they're still dying of thirst and need a solution quickly. Moses responds to their process, protest, which with what I think is a little less than helpful. Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? It's giving me, well, you should have had a snack when you tell someone you're hungry. This immediate response from Moses is sort of the equivalent of just have faith. Or, just remember what God has done. Or, just be patient. And yet, nothing really good after, comes after a just, does it? Life is more complicated than that. I really wish the biblical authors would have given us a little more, you know, the people crossed their arms, or Moses rolled his eyes. I want to know, I'm curious about the human embodied part of our, these biblical characters. Because at first reading, we could hear Moses' voice as a sort of Gandalf figure from the Lord of the Rings. You know, the authoritative, you shall not pass voice. <laughs> but we could also imagine hearing Moses, under the pressure of yet another conflict, stepping back from responsibility, playing the God card and redirecting the conflict away from himself. Any Enneagram Nines out there? Now, it's fair to say that I can't imagine being in Moses' shoes. From being called upon by the God of the universe for a job he didn't want in the first place and tried to get out of seven times over, to the quarreling of millions of people in his care, who's often found in a difficult place. And yet he's not God, is he? It can be easy for us to set people up on a pedestal as wholly other than us. I think this happens a lot when we read scripture. We think that because these people made it into the Bible, they are somehow holier than us, and not just everyday people. 
I bet that if we sent the Bible back in time, people would be shocked by which of their neighbors, friends, and community characters made the cut. Even those called by God, even Moses. It can be easy for us to assume that Moses is always right. That what he says is the end-all be-all because he was called by God. And yet he is human, just like us. Moses had just liberated the Israelites from a man named Pharaoh. The Pharaoh was a leader of the Egyptians, like Moses. They both acted as sort of go-betweens between the people and their God. Except Pharaoh was often elevated to divine status himself. The ancient Israelites practiced a form of religion called monolatry, not monotheism, as would come later, meaning that they worshiped one God, Yahweh, but acknowledged others. The Israelites lived in Egyptian society for so long that I am sure many of them understood the relationship between Pharaoh and the people as an example of their own belief of Yahweh, what their own belief of Yahweh could look like, as well as if Yahweh was not physically among them, they use this as an image, as an example for what their relationship with Yahweh could look like. And now, only a few months have passed since they left Egypt. The Israelites are somehow supposed to just drop all of that, to forget their experience, to forget their image of Pharaoh and how they were conditioned to live in order to put their full and complete trust in Yahweh. It makes sense to me now as to why the relationship between Yahweh, their, the Israelites' relationship between Yahweh and Moses is complicated at best. In his response to the Israelites, Moses accuses the people of testing the Lord. In a way, the Israelites are questioning. They're questioning everything they know about their relationship with Yahweh. They're questioning their decision to follow this invisible entity into the unknown, into a place of risk, into a place that could lead to death, so they could potentially, possibly, maybe, have abundant life. When they face struggle, they begin to idealize the past, longing for the safety of captivity, even if it was steeped in oppression. At least it was predictable. It's difficult for them to accept the kindness and generosity of Yahweh when all they've known is exploitation. When we experience trauma, our bodies remember, even the trauma of past generations. So this isn't something the Israelites will be able to shake off quickly. This raises the question for me, are they testing Yahweh? Or are they testing the image of Yahweh as Pharaoh? whom they've seen, heard, and known closely and tangibly for literal generations. I think the actual question that keep, people keep pushing is, are you another god like Pharaoh? A quote, God who objectified us. A quote, God who used and abused us and made us fight for our needs. When Moses asks the Lord what he should do, the Lord doesn't speak of or confirm Moses' own accusations. Yahweh does not answer, does not question the people's needs, does not chastise them for speaking out, 
or even confirm that the people are indeed testing the Lord. The Lord simply responds to the need at hand, providing instructions on how it can be met. This is the Lord's character. This is who Yahweh is, gentle, faithful, and patient. Just like the Israelites struggled to separate the images of Yahweh and Pharaoh, so can we struggle too. Our images of God can be intertwined with modern-day pharaohs of our society. Our images of Yahweh can mirror the, quote, gods of scarcity, of fear, of busyness, of individualism, the, quote, gods of faith leaders, of institutions, even denominations. And when these grow to define our understanding of the Lord, we shrink the creator of the universe down to a small, unsatiable, inconsistent, transactional being. I understand Moses' frustration with the Israelites as they fail to recognize God's presence and pattern in their lives. And yet I also get that the Israelites had so much unlearning, so much undoing to do that wasn't about to happen in a few months or even a few years. The Israelites need the continual provision of protection, food, and water as reminders that Yahweh isn't like the other gods, that Yahweh's consistent, faithful present is what sets Yahweh apart. To meet their needs, God provides Moses with directions towards a place called Mount Horeb. This location is very familiar to Moses. It was on this holy ground where Moses, in awe, took off his shoes and hid his face as God appeared to him in a burning bush. And now it will be the place that the Lord will answer the people's question, is the Lord among us or not? On this mount, Moses found soft, porous limestone that when struck and cracked, groundwater would flow from, from underneath. God provides water and the life it symbolizes and will impart out of something that appears to be lifeless. A reminder of the creation story of water out of the depths. An image of God as life-giving, life-sustaining. An image of the God who finds a way out of no way. Yahweh also instructs for Moses to bring with him a few elders to find the rock and water. The elders are storytellers and story holders of all that has come before their people. And now they will be witnesses to the release of life-giving water that could only come from Yahweh. A God who shows up in their people. A God who invites the people of God to participate in the divine to carry these encounters and to proclaim them to all who will listen. I wonder what images of God you carry with you in your day-to-day -day life. Are they ones of abundance? Do they bring tangible reminders of unconditional love? Do they, or do they mirror other areas of our lives that create scarcity, and fear, 
or that come from trauma or pain? Do they change amidst struggle or do they remain consistent? I invite you to take a gentle inventory of how you view God and where those images might come from. Noticing and recognizing those that no longer serve to point us to Yahweh helps to redirect our focus to the countless ways that God shows up in our lives each and every day. It also reminds us to be patient with ourselves as we unlearn the images that have kept us from God. This scriptural story shows us that we are sustained even in our questioning. We are sustained even when we cling to, quote, gods that were never meant to be worshipped. We are sustained in our desperation and we are sustained in our restoration. Because it is God's presence that sustains us. We are reminded of God's presence in the water that we drink or wash our face with or the tears that we cry, and the people who love us well and act as witnesses to God's presence so that they might remind us when we have forgotten. We are reminded of God's presence in the oasis and in the seemingly lifeless rocks. These images remind us that the Lord goes before and beside and behind us so that we might bear witness to a Yahweh who is our faithful sustainer. May it be so. Amen. Would you pray with me? Giver of life, in whom all things live and move and have their being, are you with us? We seek assurance often. Like the Israelites at Massa, we want proof. Like the people of Meribah, we ache for assurance beyond words, something we can see and touch. Lord, forgive our testiness. Renew our commitment to hold fast. Strengthen our belief in your mysterious presence. Give us the miracle of gratitude for how our lives are sustained in your care. Shatter the stoniness of our resistance. Break forth as water from a rock, filling our hearts and minds with images of you that flow from patience, gentleness, love, and grace. Giver of life, in whom all things live and move and have their being, we give thanks. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon. Please join us again next week. In the meantime, you can find us online at orangemethodist.org.